0: Have you ever lost anything, something of value, someone of value, someone that was so important to you, and then the cruelty of and the reality of death has taken them, perhaps even in the prime of their lives or the relationship you shared? It can be devastating. And there are those that would have us believe that nothing ever happens to us that's untoward, difficult, negative. Who are these people? Where do they live? I don't really know. But the Bible does talk about the cost. The Bible does talk about loss. The Bible does talk about the effect it has on our lives. In fact, we have narratives, we have stories, and we have principles that the Bible teaches, so that we're able to cope, we're able to even triumph in our times of loss. I don't think there is any scripture that I can think of that says to you that when you come to Christ, everything will be so wonderful, you'll never, ever, ever, ever have a tear, have a fear, have a problem. Stay with us today as we look into the loss of all things and some of the great worthies of old who have testified to the grace of God when man could not help them or give them or life could not give them what they needed. When we turn to the book of Philippians, we are confronted with one of the most beautiful books that Paul ever penned. In fact, apart from a slight admonition in the fourth chapter and the second verse, we have no reproof to the church at Philippi. That, by contrast with the other letters that he wrote, the prison epistles they're called, because the majority of them were written in Rome when Paul was imprisoned, all have an underlying problem that he's addressing. And if you go through those, you will understand what the problems were. Let's take Paul's letters in absolute detail and completely. And we'll just look at them. Now, Romans, of course, is a great and formidable book, because it's presenting the enormity of our redemption. Not only our need to be saved and to be redeemed, to be forgiven, but also the price that it cost Almighty God and his Son. And then it goes on to talk about the spirits working within our lives how we are regenerated. That means we are made alive. We're brought out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his dear son. Talks about the tremendous victory we have over sin, over our own flesh, those carnal desires that are latent within us. Romans talks about a number of things, even the great overall plan that God has got not only for the Gentiles that are part of his church, but also Israel, Israel in prophecy. He talks about the calendar of God, how God has done great things in Israel and will yet do great things in Israel for his chosen people. And then from the 12th chapter right through to the 16th, you have practical principles how to live the Christian life what is expected, what God wants, his will for our lives, and so on. That's Romans. Well, Corinth was, (laughs) it was really a place of, well, one has to say, licentiousness. It was a worldly place. It's right up there in Greece, just about an hour and a half today, by car from Athens. You can go there and you should go there if you have that opportunity. Corinth was a place full of religion, but it was dark religion. And yet there was a light. It was the light of Judaism. There were many, many believers, Jewish believers, not in Christ as we understand it, but in the Torah. And in the midst of a dark and licentious world, they were living for God as best they knew. And then into that tumultuous city came the great apostle, and he ministered, and there was a revival. Others ministered with him, and the witness had already been sown, and God was moving in a mighty way. But when Paul left there, he became so totally aware of a multitude of problems that came into that church at Corinth. And so the first letter of Corinthians is written, and the whole idea is to straighten out those problems, all kinds of problems. Now, fundamental to the problem was the fact that it was a divided church. It was a divided church between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and this was a major problem in the first century church. Those that had come conscientiously into Judaism by birth, by nationhood, or had converted, were very conscientious, very committed to the ways, the things, the word, the Torah of God. And then they came to Christ, and their understanding of Christ was now forming. It was by no means mature. They had hundreds, thousands of years of being taught a certain way, culturally, historically, religiously. And then the Spirit of God transforms their understanding and they are able to embrace Christ as their Messiah, Christ as their Redeemer. But into the church comes those that had no such religion. They had been up there on the mountain at the temples that were filled with vulgarity and darkness and sedition and sexuality that was perverted. Oh, we don't need to go there. But you've got the picture, I'm sure. And these people, they came to Christ too. And there was such a mixed multitude that came in. Jesus had said to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They had no idea what it would be like when every creature heard and many Christians still today get a shock. When every creature hears and many Christians are made born again and come into the kingdom and they come with all their baggage. Mentally, emotionally, sin baggage, sensuality is part of their baggage. And the Jewish believers were horrified about it because, you see, fundamental to the law of God is holiness and separateness from the world and even in which they live. So Paul begins to sit down and talk to them by way of letter. And you'll know as you go through it, all the different misconceptions the church had about the Lord's Supper, about the Lord's Day, about the Sabbath, about morality and immorality, about grace and law. All these things are brought to the surface in this wonderful book. And then, of course... Paul talks about the spiritual gifts. They were having a free-for-all. God had indeed poured out his Spirit on them, but they were running amok. That's when the flesh can interfere with what the Spirit is doing. And many of us over the years have seen a bit of that, and maybe even been part of it, and been brought through that into a mature understanding and commitment. Well, when they received that letter, the first epistle of Corinthians, They didn't like it. There was a terrific upheaval in the church. Many who really were guilty of many of these distortions began to turn on Paul, began to question his apostleship. And that's why the second epistle is written. And then we have all these other smaller books. The book to the Ephesians, It's all about the key to understanding God's redemption for the whole world. You see, the the Jewish believers believed that they were a cut above those that had come into the church, rank outsiders. Oh yes, they accepted that the mercy of God had received those people. But really, They looked down their noses at them because they came in stained and polluted by their continuing lifestyle back in the world. They were saved, but not sanctified. And, of course, there was a separation. Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he prays, he prays, he prays, two, in fact, three times he prays that the eyes of the understanding for both Jewish believers and Gentile believers would be open that they could see and grasp and understand the magnitude of this great salvation. You know, there are very few people, even today, even those that are good, solid, committed Christians that understand the magnitude, the vastness of our redemption, our our experience being born again. We're really in the Hallway. We haven't gone further into the vast truths that are ours, the blessings that are ours, the knowledge that is ours or can be, so that we walk with a dignity, a grace, authority, a power, a blessing. You know, we rob ourselves by our desire for other things rather than the deep things of God. That's why these Deeper Life podcasts are so important, because we're touching on the deeper things, the broader aspects of what we call loosely and generally Christianity. It is a so great salvation. That's what the Apostle Paul called it. It is so great, so vast, so amazing, so multifaceted. And the Ephesians had to learn that they, the Christians that had a Jewish background and Christians that had a Gentile background, were all one in Christ Jesus. And of course, the book of Galatians tells us that too. That's, that's addressing the problem that so many have between law and grace. And I confess to you that that has been always a stumbling block in my own life and how I had to study and really seek God to have this terrible sense of obligation to the law broken over my life that I could see, yes, we're called to be holy, but it's by the Spirit's doing, not by our striving in order in some way, shape or form to get the favour of God. The book of Colossians is talking about the worship of angels and deities and so on. And this is a wonderful book for many that have got confusion about sainthood and angelic beings and all of that. It is all about the supremacy of Christ. Christ who is all in all and all in you all. He only will you worship. And then, of course, it goes on, it writes to Timothy, He writes to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians, well, that's known today, the city of Salonica, Thessalonica, up north in Greece today, a thriving city today. It was a thriving city then. They had the same amazing situation. Jewish believers came in, Gentile believers came in, and of course there was an upheaval. And they had a lot of problems, a lot of questions, not too many answers regarding the second coming. It was a divided church. It was a confused church. And so that's why Paul writes to them very emphatically and in a very clear and simple way, sets out the pattern regarding the Lord's return. Talks about the rapture, talks about the great tribulation, the emergence of the Antichrist, talks about the fact that that spirit of Antichrist was in the world then, as it is now, increasingly will be until he is manifest. And then we have other Wonderful books, the books to Timothy and Titus, pastoral books, books that are given to young men who aspire to and are very much committed to Christian ministry. You should read those books. You should read those books and pray that your pastor, or if you're contemplating going into the ministry, you should pray that you will fulfill the principles and the demands of the ministry that is portrayed there. It's not only the ministry either of the pastor. It's also the elders. It's also their wives. It's also the church and how the church should govern itself and conduct itself in a very alien world. Church has always been a light and a source of conviction in a darkened world, all down through the ages. But let's go back to Philippians. Philippians is slightly different. You know, when Paul writes to these churches to correct them, the ones that I've talked about, Corinthians and Colossians and Ephesians and Thessalonians and so on, in the main, he starts off in the ancient way by introducing himself. And when he's going to correct a church with one of these letters of correction, he begins very emphatically, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and so on. Well, what does that matter? Well, it matters very, very importantly, because he is not only allowing them to know who's writing the letter, Paul, comma, but then an apostle of Jesus Christ, in other words, one of the great apostles that is set apart by God, that has an authority to speak, as he will, in the succeeding chapters of those letters that he sends. So you get that in all of these books of correction. He starts off by saying, I have the authority to speak into your lives and tell you what I'm going to tell you because it comes from God. So in other words, you better listen. When he writes to the Philippians, it's different. It's different. He starts off introducing not only himself, but his companion of many years, the younger Timothy. And he doesn't start off with this tremendous powerful assertion, though it's quite true, of the apostleship that gives me the right to speak to you. It doesn't say that. He says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. Because he's, this is a sort of a, if I can put it this way, this is a fraternal letter, a brotherly letter, And it's one where he certainly addresses certain issues, but not in correction. He's reveling in them, the incarnation, the humility of Christ, and so it goes on. Philippians is a love letter. It's a letter to a church that he just absolutely adores. He tells them, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. And I pray always, making requests for you, and always with joy. I so appreciate your fellowship in the gospel from the very first day until now. So he's reminiscing, as he writes, of the wonderful experience that he had I mean, it was pretty frightening to me how he was arrested, how he was beaten, how with Paul came Silas, and they both shared the suffering in the inner prison down in the hollow of the ground, and of course, showed the grace of God, even though they'd been beaten, and here they were in this horrible, evil-smelling dungeon, they were praising God. An earthquake occurred, and everyone could have walked out of that prison if they so desired, but they didn't. The prisoners had heard Paul singing with Silas, and they sort of took courage. And Paul called out to them in that authority that he does have, now stay where you are, don't run away. And, you know, conversion came not only to many of those prisoners, And others that he'd already ministered to, which had really raised the ire of the opponents to the gospel, but even the governor of the prison came trembling and gave his heart to the Lord Jesus. And so that was the nucleus, including that demon-possessed girl that he delivered, all there for you to read in Acts chapter 16 they were the nucleus. They were the little group that formed the beginnings of that church in Philippi. And so when he writes from the Roman prison, waiting to come before Caesar, he says, look, you give me so much pleasure. Now, not every church that he wrote to gave him pleasure. Some of them gave him a headache. But here, Paul just loves the church at Philippi. You move on into the second chapter, and he talks about holy things, majestic things. In fact, he talks about the humility that we all should have seen and exemplified in Jesus Christ. If you want to know how humble you should be, All you need to know is that the pattern of humility is Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, verse 6, chapter 2, who being in the very essence of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. It was a humble thing to come in the likeness of men. For God the Son, he who knew no restrictions, he who only knew the glory of the Father, he who was spotless, sinless, and glorious, tabernacled himself in confinement. A human body became born as a babe, Running around as a little infant, developing as a child to a youth, knowing the will of the father at an early age and preparing himself for that. That was humility. And the Bible says, and when found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, verse 8, and became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of those on earth, and of those in the nether gloomy darkness under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so he was saying right at the outset of that portion of amazing truth, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but all the interests of others. Why? Because that's what God did. That's what Christ did. He cared for others more than himself. Hence the incarnation. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we have this precious, overwhelming, panoramic view of the glory of Jesus humility of Jesus, the sensitivity of Jesus. And Paul's saying to them, you know, pursue that, follow that. But then he goes on to, in the third chapter, talk about something quite different. Away from the brashness that our gospel, that can suddenly and often become, he talks about things that cost him to be a believer. Because we know that he was an absolute Pharisee of the Pharisees. He loved the law. He loved serving God through Judaism. And the Bible says here in the third chapter and verse 8 Indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He lost his reputation. He lost his position. He lost the uh, lording of others. He lost his authority within Judaism. He was counted as being, well, a heretic. He was beaten. He was stoned. They wanted to kill him, most of all. His name was Dirt, and no one wanted to know him. They withdrew from him. Judaism looked at him with anger and with scorn. And as he had been glad of the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, so there were those that looked on him and wished him dead, in fact, tried to get him to a point where they could somehow deal with him, murder him, in fact. He said, I've lost everything. I've lost everything. And when we come back together again in our next podcast, we're going to go into the Old Testament and we're going to talk about people that have lost everything, sometimes because of the cause of God, of holiness and of truth, Sometimes it's just been circumstantial loss. Sometimes it's not been because they were godly or did the right thing, but there are many that have suffered much because of that, even suffering momentary poverty, momentary scorn, persecution, even martyrdom, the loss of all things.